Blog Talk Radio. First, take a look at the ratification of the amendment because this is a matter of controversy that um, got me into a lot of trouble for raising it in uh, the Reconstruction chapter of my my American history book. But I'm only repeating a, a totally mainstream interpretation. I found it hilarious. People never even heard of this before. The argument that the 14th Amendment was not constitutionally ratified. I mean, this the old National Review used to just take this for granted. I mean, old you know old conservative publications, libertarians, all all understood this. Uh, in the 1950s, U.S. News and World Report published an editorial saying, of course we all know the 14th Amendment wasn't legitimately ratified. I mean, this was just sort of common knowledge. Now I say it today and I get like Max Boot saying, oh my gosh, where did Woods get this crazy idea? Like I just invented it. Sort of funny. Well, let's look at, at what is the claim being made here. There are a few factors to take note of when we look at the ratification of the 14th Amendment. First, we have the fact that uh, to, the, the amendment was proposed in Congress, and two thirds of, of, of the people present voted to, uh, to to approve the amendment. And then it gets then it gets passed, it gets uh, sent out to the states, and then three quarters of the states have to ratify the amendment for it to uh, take effect. Well, one thing we can note about the passage of the Fourteenth Amendment is that it was not, shall we say, entirely without blemish. At the time that the amendment was uh, set to be voted on and, and discussed, John P. Stockton was a newly elected senator from New Jersey, and he was known to be an opponent of the 14th Amendment. And he took his seat, duly took his seat in the U.S. Senate the, at the beginning of the 39th Congress. Well, informal canvassing of, of uh, senators made quite clear that there was no two-thirds majority in favor of the amendment at that time. Uh, in fact, it turned out that the amendment would have been one vote short of passage. So, a motion was introduced uh, not to seat John Stockton. But he's already been seated. This is the problem. He's already been seated. So you can't really vote not to seat somebody who has been seated. If he's been seated you're supposed, and you want to get rid of him for one reason or another, you have to vote to expel him. But expulsion requires uh, a two-thirds vote. They didn't have a two-thirds vote to expel it. So they voted not to seat somebody who had already been seated. Okay? I mean, it's sort of like, you know, how can something be both A and not A at the same time and in the same manner? So they voted not to seat this man who had already been seated. Uh, and then they went ahead and voted uh, to approve the 14th Amendment. 
Now that's, you know, it's really not legal. It's right, not, not a proper procedure. But that's, that's actually the least of the problems associated with the amendment. Then it goes out to the states. Now Tennessee ratifies the amendment. But here's how Tennessee ratified the amendment. The problem that was occurring in Tennessee was that opponents of the amendment were refusing to show up at the state house uh, and thereby preventing a quorum. Okay, I mean, you have to have a certain minimum number of people present in order to conduct business. Well, opponents of the amendment thought one way to prevent its ratification is just not to show up, and then they wouldn't have a quorum. Well, in order to get a quorum, uh, two of the anti-amendment Tennessee legislators were actually kidnapped and forcibly brought to the state house and, re- and declared to be present so that the vote could take place. Now, there are some sticklers, you know, who think that kidnapping is immoral, uh, you know, who, who would throw, you know, some doubt on this, the legality of this. And the f- thing is that when, the, when the, sp- the House Speaker called the roll, well, these two uh, representatives refused to answer. They refused to, to, to say they were present because in their minds, they weren't, you know, spiritually, they weren't present. They were only there, uh, uh, you know, under duress, I mean, really by force. So they refused to answer the roll, but nevertheless, they were declared present so that the, the, the amendment could be ratified. In Oregon, there was a, a situation that was at least as irregular as that one. In Oregon, you had a case where the legislature of Oregon voted on the amendment, and they voted to approve the amendment. But then it was discovered that two of the Republicans who had been elected in Oregon had actually not been legally elected. When they actually looked again at the votes, it turned out that Democrats had been elected in those two seats. So two Republicans were removed and replaced by two duly elected Democrats. So some people thought, well, we should re-vote on, on the amendment now that we have the legitimately elected people present. This time they voted not to approve the amendment. But they were told by the federal government, sorry, we take your first answer. Okay. <laughs> New Jersey. Now, New Jersey and Ohio, the irregularities there, are it's not quite so clear-cut. I mean, obviously in Oregon, there's no, that's, uh, there's no excuse for that. And in Tennessee, there's obviously no excusing that. New Jersey and Ohio is not quite so clear-cut, but arguably there's at least some kind of irregularity here because both of these states rescinded their ratifications. And they rescinded them, though, before the amendment went into effect. It was still being voted on by other states. I mean, you could argue that if the amendment has already gone into effect and then you vote to rescind your ratification, it is probably too late. But arguably, they may at least have had some right to, to withdraw but they were told once again, sorry, we take your first answer. And New Jersey in particular, at the time that they attempted to withdraw their ratification, they actually announced, they said that we, have a, we are fearful that this amendment has been de- worded ambiguously with deliberate intent so that in the future it can be used to deprive us of our liberties. Very interesting. Well, the most fundamental reason, though, that there was an illegality involved here is that here you had the southern states, which they, they ratified the 13th Amendment in 1865, abolishing slavery. No one had any problem with them then. 1867 rolls along. The radical Republicans in Congress, who are the wing of the Republican Party, who favor you know, a very harsh settlement with the South, now that they're in power, in 1867, they declare, the, the, uh, other than Tennessee, they like Tennessee because Tennessee ratified the 14th Amendment. But other than Tennessee, the other former states of the Confederacy, the other ten states, were declared in 1867 to be illegal, without legal governments. And they're going to be militarily occupied. They're going to be divided into 
five military districts. They're going to be deprived of self-government. They're going to have, in effect, military courts open. Uh, so that was all declared in 1867. That was said about the southern states. But at the same time, these same states were told, you have to ratify an amendment to the Constitution. Now they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Because either they're legal states or they're not. If they are legal states, then you shouldn't be occupying them with the military. Uh, if they're not legal states, then you can't ask them to ratify an amendment to the Constitution because they're not legal states. I mean, you may as well ask France to ratify an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. It would be perfectly irrelevant. So in other words, you're depriving them of all the privileges of statehood, but nevertheless you're going to impose on them one of the burdens of statehood. You're going to actually demand that they ratify an amendment to the Constitution when you yourself have just said they're not even legal. The states, as constituted in the South, are not legal. So it's been argued that therefore their votes could not have counted. In no way could an illegal state, by definition, his, that vote for, for the, uh, the amendment be counted as a vote in favor of the, of the amendment. I mean, that, that, that's not to mention the coercion involved here. I mean, one, there was one congressman who said that um, when, when the 14th Amendment was sent out to the states, Tennessee approved it, but the other 10 uh, southern Confederate states rejected it. It was a northern congressman who said, well, the southern states have rejected the 14th Amendment, so we are going to march upon them at bayonet point until they, they do ratify it. Well, most, you know, most legal principle, principles would have it that a decision that you're forced to make under duress is not legally binding. So, so we have that difficulty as well. And for these reasons and, and even several others, uh, very recently, like early 1990s, Forrest MacDonald concluded that the 14th Amendment was never constitutionally Listening to Evolution Radio. Visit MakeMoreCommerce.com for more remedies with Joey L. Where remedy meets preparation. archaeologist. My background, as Uma said, is in journalism. So it's my job to be able to take this vital, important information that, that's really vital for all of our people and to try to make it accessible and understandable, put it in everyday language, and that's what our magazine is about. What I want to talk to you about today is the lost history of black Americans. I'm talking not only about 
the blacks that are here north of the Rio Grande, but through our entire American continents, north and south. It started for me when I traveled through Mexico about 11 years ago. And I went to a place called Tres Zapotes, or the Three Shoes, which is on the Atlantic coast of Mexico. And there I saw, in a museum, this magnificent sculpture of a stone head, nine feet tall, weighs 40 tons, magnificently done of obviously a black African portrayed in a kind of a helmet or a crown. I learned that there were about 18 or 19 of these which were found all along the coast of Mexico and that they were all reliably dated to 1,200 years before Christ. In other words, 3,200 years ago. They belonged to a civilization called the Olmecs. Now, when I saw this great head, I thought, well, this couldn't possibly, possibly be a black American, but it, it looks like it. Then I investigated the others. I saw the others. They also portrayed different black Americans, some with full features, some with thinner ones, different, different individuals. And yet the archaeologists tell us that no, there was no one over here from either Africa or Europe or Asia before Columbus. That is what I was told when I went to school, and it's what the archaeologists and what the establishment teachers still tell people, that there was no contact between the Americas and the ancient world before Columbus. I found that beyond this collection of these great stone heads that belong to this Olmec civilization, that there was a lot more information which is not getting out to the general public about this previous black civilization. It was a black civilization that was here. Now, to give you an idea when this civilization flourished 3,200 years ago, what was going on in the rest of the world at that time? Well, there was no Europe. There was only part of Greece. Troy was the big powerful city at the time. There was no Rome. Egypt was a great power. There was a power going on in China. But more importantly for our discussion here, there was also a great power here in the Americas. We call it Olmec, the civilization, the first known civilization. It means rubber, and it refers to a great ball which these people used to build, make, for a sacred ball game. Uh, the word Olmec is an, a term which archaeologists use just to identify these people. They don't know what they were called. Now, if it was only those stone heads figure, well, maybe it's coincidence or something. But about 1920, a Polish anthropologist was doing work in Yucatan, right in Trestopotes, and he found the remains of several burials of black people that dated back before Columbus in this very same area. On top of that, throughout the rest of this century, smaller sculpture has been found in the Olmec area, definitely portraying black people and related to this first civilization. Now, when these great black heads were first found in 1862, the Mexican, the European, and the American archaeologists said, well, these were just happened to be slaves who were blown overseas and they made statues of them. But yet the local people there, the native people, referred to those as black kings, sometimes as African kings. Also, 
If you have a slave, you're not going to create this huge, magnificent monument to someone that's the lowest part of society. You only create giant monuments to your most important people in society. On top of that, all of these great heads that were found were not just laying out in the open. They had been ritually buried with reverence, which means that they probably were great monuments at one time and that there was a period of mourning and then they were ritually buried, sort of you interred the greatness of this person. To give you an idea how magnificent these stone heads are, I should mention one thing before I forget too. Uh, the archaeologists say, oh no, they don't represent black Americans, black Africans at all. They represent uh, a kind of Indians. But they resemble, as you'll see in the slides here tonight, nothing resembling Native American Indians. On top of that, they are all crafted out of black basalt. They're not, in other words, the basalt was chosen specifically to represent a black person, someone with black skin. They weigh 40 tons and they were quarried in a, a mountain area that was 50 miles away, quarried there and sculpted there, beautifully sculpted, and then transported more than 50 miles to the capital of the Olmec civilization. Well, that's why he can sit there, that's all right. That'd be the same thing today as if you went, say, out to Gainesville, uh, Georgia, uh, found a boulder, crafted it perfectly, and by hand were able to transport it, this 90-ton uh, work, all the way to the downtown uh, Atlanta area. So whoever did this, they were obviously a great people with social organization on the same par of their artistic achievement. This is by no means the end for evidence of blacks in the Americas. Uh, a mound, a ceremonial mound, was opened in the year 1901 in northern Wisconsin, outside of the Apostle Islands. Now that's extreme north part of Wisconsin, right on the uh, Upper Great Lakes. When this mound was opened in 1901, the, the bones did not look Native American, and the skulls especially did not look Native Americans. Uh, Native Americans, you can tell almost at a glance that they are Native American skulls because the teeth they meet, the upper and lower jaws, they have either no overbite or very little overbite. These jaws had pronounced overbite. So when the archaeologists found these skulls, they began to think, well, who do these people represent? So from that overbite, they investigated the rest of the jaw structure, the cheekbone structure, the periantals, this area up here, and unquestionably, they belong to black people. Now, to be interred in a mound was a sign of honor. Uh, the average person, the average person uh, in the Native American cultures in Wisconsin, when they died, they were usually buried under the floorboards of the house. <laughs> Went down further and further. You, you, kept the, you kept the family, literally, in your domicile. Or else, if they were common people, workers and so on, they just buried anonymously in Potter's Field. The mounds were reserved exclusively for regents, kings, shamans, priests, the movers and shakers of society. These four black men that were found in this mound were laid out respectfully with copper goods. Now there's a key there. What were these ancient blacks doing up in northern Wisconsin more than a thousand years ago? And why with copper goods? The upper Great Lakes of our country forms the richest deposits of copper on earth among the largest, but more importantly, the richest, the highest grade copper. It appears that these black Africans were in 
the upper Great Lakes mining that copper. We do know, for example, that the upper Great Lakes area was the scene of a massive, complex, highly sophisticated copper mining operation. It was so complex that whoever these ancient people were, they dug a trench five miles long, were able to drill 60 feet through solid rock to remove this high-grade copper, and they were able to remove, while they were working up there, an astounding half a billion pounds of copper. Now, the Native American Indians they used copper, it was known as float copper. They'd pick it up off the ground and they'd make it into bracelets and so on. They didn't use much of it. Somebody was involved in making huge amounts of copper mining. Now, who could that have been? Well, if you look on the other side of the world, there were black kingdoms in West Africa, some of them known as Ghana and Mali. And if you study those cultures, and a lot's known about them because they lasted all the way to about 1400 A.D. when the Arabs came in. These people were great goldsmiths, great metallurgists. They used lots of copper. Now, what's interesting, folks, is in that area of Africa, there are not many great deposits of copper. Where did they get all this wonderful copper? It's also known that these Africans were tremendous seafarers. They had things known as power canoes, in which there were 60 men manning these canoes. Then, on the other side of the United States, in California, you had a black tribe. And I will show you a, uh, a drawing that was made from life, a beautiful illustration from life, of a man decked out in a kind of an Indian getup, but he is definitely not an Indian. He is a black person. What are we to make of all this? These wonderful comparisons. First of all, there is no doubt whatsoever, regardless of what the establishment archaeologists say, that there were sizable numbers of black people in the Americas, and they were not slaves blown out overseas by mistake. They actually had come here for specific economic and cultural purposes. They raised kingdoms here. Um, let me just quote from my notes. I don't like to normally do that, but there's so much information here. My brain is so small, I can't get all this stuff down. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that there was a 16th century historian. His name was Peter Martyr. This was a man who was with the Spanish expeditions to Mexico. He was an eyewitness to the Spanish conquest. And in his chronicles, he writes exactly what happened. And Peter Martyr, who accompanied Balboa, you know, the guy that was looking for the fountain of youth through Florida, they actually saw native blacks in Florida in the year 1513. There was also a priest by the name of Gregoria Garcia. He said that there were blacks on an island north of Colombia, again in the 16th century, and that the people in Panama referred to a Negro king or a black king who had just recently died. Uh, Garcia's associate, his name was Bartholomew Las Cosas, he reported blacks in Florida. They even wrote down the names of these black tribes. Um, the black tribes were known as the uh, Jamasi of Florida, the Caribbees of St. Vincent's, and the Churusas of Brazil. And they were regarded as indigenous black people. In other words, they were there before the Spanish arrived. When the Spanish arrived, they just immediately enslaved them, uh, those that survived the diseases that were introduced by the Spaniards. So very little of what is known about them beyond these reports exists today. Now, since this information has come out, there has been 
great strides made in DNA. You're all familiar with the O.J. Simpson trial, how they can get blood types down. And in this DNA research, they've been, anthropologists, archaeologists, using computers, have been able to trace the different races that inhabited the Americas before the Spaniards arrived. One of the groups they've traced definitely are Mongoloid that came across the Bering Straits. Now, these terms that I'm using have no social bearing. So when I say Negro or Negroid, it's the same I'm using Caucasoid or Mongoloid. These are scientific terms to identify people. They, I'm not talking in, in social terms. The people that came across the Bering Straits, we know about, okay, were Mongoloid. Definitely became the Indians and so on. Two, at least two black strains pre-Columbian, they call them, before Columbus here, existed in America. One of those strains, those black strains, is unequivocally traced back to West Africa. This is revealed in some of the sculpture, the Olmec sculpture, which shows some of the blacks with a peripheral ridge, barely perceptible, a peripheral ridge around the lips. That is traced to a genetic type found in Ghana. It shows you also how excellent the artist was in portraying a real-life person. Tune in every Sunday from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on The Bottom Line with Joey L. On the new Evolution Radio Network. I can't trust these niggas, they be switching sides. Trapping in the band up with your bitches side. Money new, hundreds blue, I just spent a dime. Me and you are not the same, we on a different time. Me and you are not the same, we on a different time. Me and you are not the same, we on a different time. Try and lie me when you find me, better grip your knife. But definitely Fabiani, we on a different time. Had to hustle and rob, they ain't leave me a choice. This can't be life, Jay-Z and Bean's voice. Never had a nine to five, I ain't believing that. So the block is where I decided I'm eating that. The staircase is where the fiends used to meet me at Police searching me, looking for work, but I was cheeking that Was on that block every night, getting to that bag Wanted that Koozie and Versace shit Biggie had Cooking that cocaine till it turned hard I'm living in hell, still believing in God I got faith like I'm Frank Wright Fiends don't want that work if it ain't right Niggas don't want you coming up if they ain't eating The block's up and I'm out here, I ain't leaving I'm popping, I ain't one of these lame niggas me and Carmelo Anthony fucking the same strippers Going hand in hand is what made me a boss I know how to bounce back after taking the loss See tough guys turning the bitches in court Just made them realize they ain't as tough as they thought Bodies done dropped for this money I got I earned these diamonds that I got in my watch I earned these diamonds that I got in my chain I treated myself for putting in all of that pain I can't trust these niggas, they be switching sides Trapping in the band up with your bitches side Money new, hundreds blue, I just spent a dime Me and you are not the same, we on a different time Me and you are not the same, we on a different time Me and you are not the same, we on a different time Try and lie me when you find me, better grip your knife But definitely Fabiani, we on a different time I wanna open this up, telling y'all I'm opening up I wanna be able to smell it before I open it up That shit ain't potent enough, I be plotting low in the cut Looking at the TV like that's supposed to be us But who am I to blame? I'm still a student at a game I maneuver out the rain and bump my shooters when I shame Yeah, I need a bitch that's a down one When them pounds come, make this out of town run Don't lead till your round's done Time to time I still 
still chop it up with the old heads. They told me how most niggas snitch when you go fast. Told me to switch the hustle to flow dead. My brother Pop died and flow dead. You ain't quote dead. Sometimes I still wish I had a brick for the coke heads. Pull up with a mount in the snow and tell them go sled. Remember Halloween's back when we used to throw eggs? Still in mopeds, gave a fuck with the Pope said. Nigga, which one you happen to pick? Judge by 12 or carry by 6. Granddad said, be careful with the drugs, don't let them defeat you. I said, I don't do the drugs, I just sell them to people. He told me it's cold love when you going up. Couple niggas come through and see how you holding up. Pictures on your cell wall that you was holding up. Give it some time, them packages and them bitches start slowing up. I can't trust these niggas, they be switching sides. Trapping in the band up with your bitches side. Money new, hundreds blue, I just spent the dime. Me and you are not the same, we on a different time. Me and you are not the same, we on a different time. Me and you are not the same, we on a different time. Try and me when you find me, better grip your knife. But definitely Fabiani, we on a different time. to the God, talking to the show of you in the chat, you can always call in, call in the number, uh, it has changed, so the new call in number is 516-531-9318, that's 516-531-9318, if you want to call in and holler at me, um, the audience is not as big as it used to be, so we're working on, we're growing the audience, getting it back right, all that good stuff. 
right. So with that being said, let's just jump into this tonight. And we're going to talk about injustice tonight, right? And an injunction is an equitable remedy, right? And we've, we've dealt with this before. People have done injunctions for things like traffic, right? So you don't get stopped anymore. People have done injunctions for everything from traffic all the way up to things like, um, you know, stopping drilling and <clears throat> keeping keeping people off property and all types of stuff like that. Right? So an injunction is a quarter that essentially requires a person to do or cease doing a specific action, right? So there are three types of injunctions. There's the permanent injunction, there's the temporary restraining order injunction, and then there's the preliminary injunctions. So temporary restraining orders and preliminary injunctions are what we call equitable in nature. And when we talk about equity and things that are equitable, we're talking about something that's fair and it's impartial. Okay. So, in a lawful context, right, it can relate to equity as opposed to law. And those are two different things. So, the distinction between equity and law originates from England, where courts were derived in two different kinds. You had courts of equity and courts of law. So, for example, a court of equity can give equitable relief. As equitable relief represents really Apart from money damages, so for example, um, uh, uh, as somebody loses the court case, right, then the losing party um, will then be ordered to fulfill the contractual duty to what they call specific performance. Okay, so this represents an outcome based on fairness and justice rather than legal technicality. Okay. This is where equity is. Now, it's funny because, you know, with everything that we've talked um, over the course of, you know, over the course of time, um, you know, everything more people can be here to this. Right? I just have to say, you know, I don't, I really don't know um, where a lot of people's heads are, why a lot of people don't tune into these shows um, as much as they used to, right? Because has changed, right? Because there was the same problems. People still have the same issues. Racism still exists, right? Whether you're at the bottom or the totem pole or the top, you still going to be dealing with problems, right? Um, as they say, as long as you're at the top, right? Um, but then again, when, you, when you're at the bottom, you're getting wrong. It's like a crab in the bell mentality. So, either way, Looking for equity, and so equity is the interest in such in itself, right? and we'll, we'll dive more into that another day. But um, when we talk about equity, you have to look at things like a stopper, like equitable stopper, uh, equitable winnings, equitable distribution, equitable ownership, equitable subordination. <laughs> so. Equity plays a major role, pretty much in all facets. Right? Equity is is probably one of the things that you could ask for. Right now, when we talk about injunction, uh, one of the things that is important with an injunction is the stop. 
estoppel, right? To stop something, right? And and estoppel means to stop something um, before it can continue, right? So, so, so when you use the idea of equity in an injunction, we have to we have to understand the four facets, right? So, um. When we talk about injunctions tonight, I really want to make sure that it's clear that injunctions should also be done through the process of notary, which is what a lot of people do because they always represent a judge. Okay? So the injunction is a court order requiring an individual to do or omit doing a specific action, right? So it is an extraordinary unity that courts utilize in special cases alter or maintain the status quo. So then we have to know what the status quo is. So let's take a moment here and look up a legal definition is for status quo. Now according to um US they say that status quo generally refers to the existing experience or circumstances. So a status quo order may be issued by a judge to prevent any of the parties involved in a dispute from taking action until the matter can be resolved. It's to prevent harm or to preserve the existing conditions so that a party's position isn't prejudiced in the meantime until a resolution is reached. Now, for example, um, in the context of, of dealing with like family law, stuff like that, right? A status quo would issue to one parent from removing a child from the home, stuff like that, right? So, status quo orders are normally issued in the context of um, you know, different type of situations where um, something could be prevented, and this is where the injunction comes in place. Okay, but as we deal with this injunction tonight. We, we must understand that the injunctions essentially can be issued by the judge, right? Whether that judge is nobody or whether, or whether the judge is the judge that is behind the bench, okay? The injunctions can be issued um, in different manners. This is also why you said that's one of the show. How's that? better? How is that? So they messed up with the show? Okay. So it's choppy. Yeah, I figured it probably will be choppy. Let's see if we can fix it. How is that? Is it still choppy? Let me check one, two, one, two, one, two. Okay, let's try one more time. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. One, two. Mic check, mic check, mic check. Mic check, mic check. All right, cool. So, thank you, thank you, brother. All right, so, um, y'all let me know 
if you're having a hard time here. Right. So let's just dive right into this. I'm going to make sure the information gets out there before they really do start messing with stuff right now. Equity <clears throat> um, jurisdiction. Right, when we talk about this, we talk about enforcement of powers, which right, basically strengthening um, it's decreased, right? And we're talking about in personam jurisdiction, things like that, right? But in personam orders to the defendant, right? We talk about, you know, who has jurisdiction. So we talk about injunctions. The, the, the decree, which is known as an injunction, right? So it is issued. It can join the defendant not to do a specific act. They're going to stop you from doing something, right? So this way, um, you know, you can have a remedy. Okay, it's it's um, this is called prohibitory, prohibitory, right? This is a prohibitory injunction, right? So prohibitory, right? And we talk about uh, prohibiting someone, on the other hand, right? Um, it enjoins him or her to do some type of affirmative action, right? and this is where we get mandatory injunctions. So a mandatory injunction is one that compels the defendant to restore things to their former condition and virtually directs him to perform an act. Right? I think that this is really important because now we're talking about restitution. Right? So the court, when he says that a wrong has been committed, has a right at once to put an end to whatever's going on, has no hesitation in doing so by a mandatory injunction. You see? So, while these are two major types of classifications for injunctions, there are three other, and I want to talk about those tonight, right? Um, the permanent, preliminary, and preliminary. So, the also the like the easiest type of injunction that people can, um, could get from a court would be a restraining order. You understand? So the permanent injunction is one which is uh, issued as a final solution to the matter of the dispute. So it does not mean that they can be reversed or modified. It means that simply after a full hearing of the factors that are involved, um, a decision has been made to make the injunction a permanent injunction. Now, uh, we were talking about trust and doing your trust. You can issue your own permanent injunction. <laughs> okay? So this is opposed to preliminary or what they call interlocutory injunctions. Um, injunctions which are granted before a hearing can be held, essentially. So the procedure involved is usually uh, what they call the informal so we know that a lot of times in law, you do a formal process or an informal process. So you could do a bill You could do an equity suit if you need to. You could ask for um, a permanent injunction if you felt that your rights were going to be violated. Right? But essentially, um, there are three different steps. So the first step is that the defendant will give a notice of the hearing of the motion for the preliminary injunction. Second is the defendant must post a bond to protect the defendant if the preliminary injunction cannot be held. So if somebody says, fuck with you, you can't get the injunction through the court, and you don't do your own. 
itself is usually formal, and this is the final preliminary organization because of the emergency nature of the motion for preliminary injunction. Okay, so the temporary restraining order uh, is, is you know, far more serious because the injunction issue is done without the notice of the defendants. And I think that, you know, and it really like a kind of because somebody can put a shirt over on you, you don't even know them. You wouldn't have even done anything wrong to that person. Right? So, this is the reason why equity is so important. Because they try to help prevent all of that shit from happening, right? But, so, the hearing itself is truly informal. Okay? And uh, it produces the final footing on the injunction because of the emergency nature of the preliminary injunction. Now, and this, this is crucial, right? When we're talking about injunctions because as far as the defendant is concerned, right, he's not bound by the order until he receives the actual notice of it. And this is the reason why you have to give proper notice when you're doing these type of actions. You send an injunction three times, and you give proper notice of the injunction. But proper notice can also be considered, um, so it's, it's all three minutes, um, so five minutes, serving someone. But proper notice can also be considered, um, you know, to to be something that you put on the record, whether it's on the record in a trust file, Okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to switch the audio over, I'll call in, and then uh, we'll go from there. So let's take a quick break, and then I'll switch the audio over. And Cheyenne M. Cushamirel, would you state your name for the record, please? Your attribute for the record, please. Uh, Cheyenne Matilda Cushman L. on behalf of America's Empire Aboriginal Law. All right. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Um, the first question I want to ask you is, are you employed? Uh, objection, man. This hearing is supposed to be about jurisdiction. This court has no jurisdiction. The court has no jurisdiction to determine its own jurisdiction for a basic issue in any case before a tribunal. Well, if I have no jurisdiction to determine my own jurisdiction, how are you going to get that issue resolved? Listen, this case, this case in this courtroom is a colorable, incompetent court of jurisdiction. You can't, according to federal case law, you can't set another hearing to reach and determine your own jurisdiction. As I've stated for the record plenty of times, I'm only having threat to rest and coercion and because the prosecution falsely holds my property and I'm here to clarify that matter. Other than that, I'm here under threat to rest and coercion. It is completely against federal case law. It has power to act and a court must have the authority to decide that question in the first instance. That's Rescue Army versus Municipal Court of Los Angeles. A departure by a court from the recognized and established requirements of law, however close apparent adherence to mere form and method of procedure, which has the effect of depriving one of a constitutional right, 
so you might want to get an injunction put in to stop somebody from doing that again, right? So just to give you an idea, right? So when we talk about injunction, right, the, the balance um, of of the law, right, between, remember, law and equity are two essentially different things, okay? Because equity does things that should have been done, whereas the law, you know, can be just punitive, Okay, so for instance, the effect of an injunction would be disastrous to an established or a legitimate business, right? Um, if there was some type of interruption to the person's business, right? So let's say you go into a business, right? And, you know, um, you're in that business, and essentially in that business, what happens is, is, is they, let's say that they harass you within the business, right? And you ask for an injunction to stop them from doing that. Well, that injunction might put that business out of business, right? So injunctions, um, you know, I, I've said that they, you know, they can be destructive, but they can also be a remedy that is essentially irreparable to the person who did the damage to you. So, you know, injunctions are very important because they go both ways, right? But when we talk about Specific requirements for injunctions, right? You got to go look at the case law, right? So this way, you know, you know exactly what you're doing, right? So, case law in the area of injunction has established that um, injunctions will not be granted without complying with certain requirements. Now, I've said this before, right? And and if you've done an injunction, you know that you can do your own injunction, right? But um, there are also guidelines if you ask in a court for injunction, and so. We'll just go through some of these things, right? Um, and these are designed to enable, right, a student or, you know, practitioner, whoever it is, right, to essentially develop um, a, a checklist for yourself, right, um, in order to satisfy, do you meet the requirements for what we call equitable basis, right, for an injunction? Because it's a hell of a remedy. It's probably one of the most powerful remedies, right? So um, since the remedy usually follows substantive law, when we talk about, you know, anytime that we talk about law, right, you have to understand what type of law we're talking about, right? And when we bring up substantive law, right, it, it is a set of law that governs how members of society are to behave. So it, it basically... Um, it doesn't look like procedural law because procedural law, all the attorneys essentially know. They know procedure. They don't know substantive law, right? When this is a set of procedures, right, for making, administering, and enforcing substantive law, okay? This is why they had the Law Revision Council that was put in place. And if you know anything about Law Revision Council, all they do is they sit around and they make up these laws, Right to try to 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 govern the original rights and obligations that you have, you know, from from the day that you came out your mama's womb, right? So substantive law may derive from the common law institution. Okay, so substantive law is is, is really important when we're talking about injunctions, right? So case law in this area identifies the most commonly used. Um, as the unfair compet uh, competition, right? So we talk about tort claims, shit like that, right? Infringement rights, trademarks, uh, theft of trade secrets, 
uh, interference with contractual relations, all of that stuff, right? So, so when we talk about oh, somebody may say, "Oh, he's a nuisance," right? Or there may be defamation of your character, or there might be somebody that trespasses on your private property. You understand what I'm saying? So, if trademarks and trade names are involved, the distinction between the two are really important, right? Because a trademark must be affixed to the good, you understand? Which involves uh, the trade name, which is usually associated with the good themselves. And then the trade names do not have the affixed uh, name to the item, but the name itself must have acquired the secondary meaning. Basically, um, it is the association by the public of the article with the reliability and the quality of the manufacturer, right? So when we start talking about trade names and trademarks and shit, you know, that, that gets into a whole different meaning. But that's kind of like you buy a car, you ride around in the car, right, and, and you have the name Ford on the car, right? You can't slap your own um, logo on the car, right, and, and call it John Smith's car, right, because it wasn't made by you. You understand? So it's that type of thing, right? So and these are this is where you get into trade secrets and shit like that, right? But where, where the tort essentially is concerned, and, and tort is important in injunctions because somebody violates your injunction, you can then come back and you say tort against them. So where the tort is concerned, I mean, it deals with an interference with the contractual relationship that that is in place. Okay, so this determines right um, how the interference was accomplished. And then it's got to be examined, right? So this is um, where tort essentially is designed to induce a refusal to deal. That's what they call it, okay? Was it accomplished by violence or by a uh, oral suggestion? Was there an actual contract or just a business relationship? You understand? Okay, so who was involved? Was there a lawyer? Was it a competitor? Uh, was it a stranger? What are the interests on each side, right? See, when you do something, for instance, and let's say that you create a product, right, and then you put that product into your trust, and let's say somebody then comes and steals the product, what happens at that point in time? Well, I'll tell you what happens. They then violated trust property. It's trust property. You understand? So, so the trust is the beneficiary for that property. This is why the trust and the injunction go hand in hand, right? So a competitor's privilege is most important because he can then prove his own position by including a refusal to deal with another competitor, but then he can't induce him to breach a contract. See, injunction is really important, right? And we we can we can take this into uh, shit like defamation because defamation can. Can um can either personally it can either personally happen where the plaintiff's uh, reputation is injured, or by commercial disparagement, that's what they call it, right? Or what they call libel. So this is where you get libel, slander, shit like that from, right? So you gotta be really important. Well, you gotta be a really important person, right? Obviously, um, you know, for somebody to do major major damage. But at the same time, you could be, um, you know, a, a regular, just a regular guy, you know, and deal with some type of slander. For instance, you know, um, they can say that, you know, because I know a lot of Moors that travel with their own license plates. 
right? And and I've heard people say, oh, these guys are sovereign citizens. Well, that in itself is slander. You can't call somebody a sovereign citizen, right? And I think that that's not some type of defamation of that person's character. How do you know that they're not doing things correctly? They're more. Number one, they may be a national, right? You cannot discriminate against somebody's nationality because you don't like it. Right? You can't discriminate against what somebody's doing. You also can't bring libel to a situation, right? So um, defamation is really important when we're talking about injunctions, right? You can stop somebody from spreading falsehoods about you, right? Now, is the remedy at law adequate, right? So the question of, of adequacy of the remedy at law is probably one of the, the major basis for uh, equitable jurisdiction because you got to give some type of equitable jurisdiction to the court for this stuff to be in play, right? So now, um, one of the major issues in determining whether or not specific performance it can be granted right, is also a major issue for injunction. So, for example, um, let's let's suppose that there's a real estate transaction that's involved or some some piece of real estate, right? And the plaintiff comes into court, and the plaintiff is, is seeking to uh, get the defendant off of his land. Right, and get his property back. Uh, we talked about ejectment last week, right? But ejectment at law, once the title is established in the plaintiff, may appear to an adequate remedy. So when we talk about ejectment, ejectment is is really important because it, it establishes title. It establishes pure title. Okay, so who who actually has title? First in line, first in time. So. Title, real title, comes into play where? It actually comes into play when we start talking about shit like what? Like trust. Whose trust was established first? Because we got dates and we got we got time stamps. Right? So the major reason for inadequacy of, of remedies at law are multiplicity of suits, um, shit that gets speculative speculative. Speculative uh, uh, damages, irreparable injuries, okay, superior remedies, okay, um, you know, all this different type of stuff. So when we talk about stuff, right, and, and you know, if you got your your injunction set up, right, I think that is, it's, it could be one of the most valuable things that you can do uh, when you have your trust in place is to have an injunction set up inside the trust. To stop irreparable injury, right? To to basically slow down someone from from trying to uh, usurp your rights, because usurpation is a big deal when we're talking about injunctions and things of that nature. Okay. Um. Now, well, and, and we talk about duress and undue influence, things like that. Duress is one of you know, it's probably one, you know, threat, duress, coercion, right? Duress is the use of some form of wrongful coercion by one person upon another person to obtain a material benefit, right? I'm going to, I'm going to essentially uh, press you into, into doing something that's against your will. This is where an injunction comes in place again, right? Because um, the key to understanding duress is to recognize that it puts you in a position 
to act against your own free will. You see how they operate. So it's really crucial that that you know when we when we start talking about dealing with these different things, especially injunctions, right? That we understand our remedies. So specific performance, okay. Um, understanding substantive law. Right, understanding what is the status quo, and maybe I didn't hear that earlier because the mic was messing up. But what's the status quo, right? Because in a legal setting, a, a judge will use the status quo, right? Called a, a temporary protective order, right? Or that's the restraining order to maintain a situation. So this 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 essentially will prevent a party involved in affecting change until the matter at hand is resolved. You see what I'm saying? And, and then. Sometimes judges even do um, gag orders, so you don't even know what's going on half the time, right? Which is really, which is really important. You don't know what's going on half the goddamn time, right? So, just a few things to to think about. Um, I'm gonna open the call line because I didn't have a whole lot tonight, but I wanted to go over this remedy. Uh, next week we're gonna really dive into some stuff next week, um, but I just really wanted to get y'all ready because I think that a lot of people have done injunctions, um, and a lot of times they've been violated, right? So they violate your injunction, but the question then is how do you enforce the injunction? And that's where equity comes into play. The equity is also a extreme remedy, okay? Because if somebody violates an injunction, which is a contract. You need to know how do I go into an equity court and deal with them? How do I deal with the situation from an equity standpoint? Okay, real, real crucial. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. When we come back, um, take some calls. If you want to holler at the call lines are wide open, press the number one. Call in number 516-531-9318. If you are in the chat, all right, what up to the chat? All right, we'll be right back. Keep it locked.
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hundred million crib, three million watch, all facts, no cap, false. Nigga, you not a boss, you got a boss. Niggas getting jerked, that shit hurts, I take it personally. Niggas rather work for the man than to work with me. Just so they can pretend they on my level, that shit is irking to me. Pride always going for the fall, almost certainly. It's disturbing what I gross. What I gross. Survey says you not even close. Everybody's bosses to the time to pay for the office. To them invoices separate the men from the boys. Over here we measure success for how many people successful next to you. Here we say you broke if everybody is broke except for you. Ow. Ain't nothing to it. Real one. affirmations, they take affidavits, 
Okay? And they do what's, what's on the statutory declaration. Okay? Um, including from witnesses, right? So they authenticate the execution of certain classes of documents. They take acknowledgments of deeds and other conveyances. They uh, protest notes and bills of exchange. They provide notice to foreign drafts. They prepare marine or ship protests in cases of damages. They provide exemplifications. They in notarial copies and to perform certain other official acts depending upon the jurisdiction. So such transactions are known as notarial acts, right? And they are commonly known as notarization. So the term notary public only refers to common law notaries, right? And should not be confused with civil law notaries, which are completely different because civil law notaries, right, are lawyers of uh, non-contentious private civil law who draft and take legal instruments for private parties, things like that, right? So keep that in mind because you may need a civil law notary. Now, now with the exception of Louisiana, Puerto Rico, Quebec, um, and British Columbia, right, a notary public in the rest of the United States and pretty much most of Canada has powers that are far more limited than those of civil law notaries okay? or, or other common law notaries. So it's important because, you know, you may want to get a common law notary. You may want to get a civil law notary, right? So you have to know the difference between the different types of notaries, right? So at common law, right, notarial services distinctly different from the practice of law. Giving legal advice or preparing legal instruments is forbidden by what they call lay notaries, L A Y, kind of like a layman, right? Such as those appointed throughout most of the United States. Now, if they if they're talking to you, now here's the thing, right? If they took an oath, right, then then essentially they are called a lay notary. But what they cannot do is deal with you in the private in a private manner, right? Um, and give you legal advice privately. They have, they have to be operating in their private capacity, not as the notary, not as the lay notary, right? Real crucial right there. Now, um, you know, in the United States, right, we talk about lawyers and things like that, right? Um, lawyers can become notaries too, right? So this class of notary is allowed to provide legal legal advice, they can determine the type of act that's required, different things like that. All right. So you got to know which jurisdiction that you're operating in so you can know what type of notary that you need when you're doing different types of injunctions. Okay. Because even licensed uh, lawyers, like some, some of them call them barristers, um, that's where you get the bar association from, or solicitors, they got to follow prescribed courses of study. They have to operate along the lines of what? They have to operate along the lines of dealing specifically with procedural law. This is normally why if you do decide to use an attorney, you have to use an attorney that can deal with stuff outside of procedural law that can deal with the Constitution. The Bar Association is a motherfucker. And if you know anything about the barristers, right? Barristers is the, a type of lawyer, right? The type of lawyer in common law. Right? So barristers really um, specialize in 
excuse me, courtroom advocacy litigation and shit like that. Okay, but they their whole thing is is to include taking cases in superior courts, uh, tribunals. They draft pleadings. They research the philosophy, the hypothesis, right? All of that different type of stuff. Okay. So it's really important to notice. Now, barristers are distinguished from solicitors who have more direct access to clients, right? And, and they do different type of transactional legal work. So why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because when you are doing your injunctions, when you're doing your equitable remedies and you're using your notaries, sometimes your notary may be an attorney. Okay? Sometimes your attorney may work for the bar association. There are some people who have law degrees who are not with the bar association. You dig what I'm saying? So in, in few jurisdictions, um, barristers are, are forbidden from conducting litigation, right? And can only act on the instructions of a solicitor who perform tasks um, such as corresponding with parties, drafting court documents, different things like that, right? In the bar association, Here's the funny thing about the bar. The bar is pretty much all over the world. Well, I should say in, in most uh, European countries, right, or colonialized countries. Okay? So notaries are like judges. But notaries like judges must avoid not only actual conflicts of interest, but the appearances of being biased. And I know a lot of y'all have dealt with biased attorneys. I mean, biased notaries before. Because I've dealt with attorneys who are biased that were that were notaries, and I've dealt with notaries that were biased. Okay, so sometimes it's good to get notaries that you know, people who you know who ain't gonna be biased towards your cause. All right. All right. So with that being said, I'm gonna open up the call lines if you wanna holler at me. This will be the time. Um, we're gonna keep it short tonight. We're on the radio again Thursday evening for Metaphysic Thursday, Friday evening for Open Forum Friday, and Sundays. And, and let me just say something real quick too, right? And I, I want y'all to put the word out there. Right? I don't know who spread the rumor that I was trying to convert people over to Christianity because I was doing shows on Sunday. That could be the furthest from the truth. I'm a Moor, right? I'm a Muslim. I don't. I don't need to. Um, you know, I don't. I, I do my radio shows on whatever days I feel like it, and I do them on days that are convenient for me. That's just what it is. It, it has nothing to do with religion. And I'm not trying to convert people over to anything. Right? So um, let's just put that out there, right? Just I ain't. I ain't no Mason. I'm not. You know, I'm, I, I am a more. Right? A national. I have rights, constitutional rights, right, just like you do. Constitutionally protected rights, I should say. Right? So I just want to put that out there because it's been a lot of conjecture. And when conjecture starts circulating, unless you come to the source, you never know. Alright? Alright, so with that being said, call lines is open, man. Y'all can holler at me. If not, y'all know the deal. I don't gotta stick around. Information has been dropped. Um, I'll try to work on getting this mic together for next week, man, because if, if it was that bad, and, and you know, I'm, I'm going to have to take this mug back to the Best Buy. <laughs> All right? So with that being said, man, um, I don't see nobody with their hands up. we got quite a few people in here where nobody got their hands up. So 
Um, we're gonna we're gonna knock it there, man. Appreciate y'all. All the number has changed. Five one six five three one nine three one eight. All right, I'm gonna check y'all next week on Thursday, Metaphysic Thursday. I'm gonna say peace to the God. <laughs>